Welcome to Generation Digital Workforce, the podcast that's here to explore the role of robotic process automation and other digital technologies. Whether you're just getting started or you're looking for advanced strategies and tactics, if you're curious about where human and digital workers are coming together to transform the future of work, then this podcast is for you. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to Generation Digital Workforce. This is Zena, and I'm coming at you from Austin, Texas. This morning, I have with me Eric Tyree. Eric is the head of AI and research for Blue Prism and has more than 20 years experience developing data-driven products and services to help companies innovate both technologically and commercially. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. You want to tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I um I, originally I was going to be a brain scientist, and I was going to be a brain scientist, and um, I stumbled into this whole AI thing in the process. The time I was a student, this AI was just getting very, very fashionable. So I wound up rather than modeling bits of the brain, modeling uh, or using AI to model arbitraging currency exchange rates, largely on the grounds that I could get a job afterwards if I did that. From there, I've I been involved in commercializing AI ever since. My first job was setting up a data science team in a small startup that went on to become a big startup. And what happened with this place is that every time all the new product ideas were coming through this data science team. So I kind of eventually became the product guy as well because I was working with this data science team, working with clients, solving the problems, and then sort of turning it into software products on the back of that. I then did uh, AI-driven automated trading in a, at another startup for about six years, actually as a hedge fund startup in that particular case, and then um, spent about six years or more doing data monetization. So going into companies, looking at data assets and how they can apply AI and data-driven techniques to either create new products or um, create value on data and sell it. And uh, eventually wound up at, um, at Blue Prism because I realized that one of the really interesting things about RPA is, is it uses the entire spectrum of, uh, of AI. It's not just you know uh, machine learning. It's it's everything from you know program synthesis, you know getting computers to write their own programs, machine vision. You know you name it, you need it for a robot. And I thought that's that that's really really interesting and a great place to be. Well, excellent. Then I think that this is a a perfect question for you. AI. These letters we throw them around a lot. What do they really mean? It's a it? Yeah, it's, it's a marketing term. I mean, I'm going to date myself here, but when I first started in this space, it was it was actually a dirty word. If you wanted to lose your funding, call it, call it AI. And um, it sort of came back in fashion about 10 years ago, but the the the, the material hasn't changed. It's, it's at the end of the day, what AI refers to is getting a computer to solve problems that you previously thought humans could do. You know, bear in mind that that, you know, you, know, you could argue that a pocket calculator is a form of artificial intelligence. I mean, we all know that kid in school who could multiply crazy numbers together in their head and spit out the answer. And everyone looked at that kid like, you know, they're a bit strange, but they're very smart. A pocket calculator can do exactly the same thing. And so you could argue there's a form of intelligence in that. But really what we're calling it is, you know, things like a computer being able to learn. And it looks mysterious and magical until you figure out how it actually works. And, and that's the sort of um, the secret of AI is it's, it's that it, it's, it's only interesting until you really know what's going on. Then you realize it's just maths and uh, a bit of coding. 
But the point is, is that it's allowing us to do things with computers that we couldn't do before, that you know, allow us to do stuff that even humans couldn't do before. I mean, a lot of the stuff I was doing in automated trading was, it was AI driven, but it was also doing stuff that, you know, at scales that, you know, not only was it doing sort of human-like decision-making, but was doing it with a speed and at a scale that no human being could possibly do. So, um, but that's what it is. It's, it's getting computers to look at the world and understand it, getting them to, to learn from it, getting them to write their own programs. It's, it's all those things under that umbrella. That is probably the best definition for AI that I've ever heard. So I really appreciate that, and I, I'm sure our audience uh, does as well. So let's explore this relationship a little bit more between AI and RPA. How does RPA work with AI and bring tangible impacts sure. to the business? Sure. Yeah, okay. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty simple in the sense that, that RPA is all about automation. The A in RPA kind of gives that away. So you can do RPA without any AI. You, know, you can take a process and just execute it within a digital worker, you know, no problem. But if you want to start doing stuff that's more interesting and maybe more higher value, then you're pushing into things like machine learning. So I want to program a digital worker to automate a fraud system. So I want it to look at card transactions coming through. Most of the time when I look at card transactions, it's very, very easy to work out if it's fraud or not fraud. So you might want a digital worker that automates that whole process. But then you get this bit, say, say 5% that requires some judgment. Now, it's very, very expensive to use human beings for that. And it's also very error prone. But I could train a digital worker to have a bit of machine learning in it that one can work out and automate that process to the last 5%. But also what you can do is maybe get a bit more sophisticated and tell a digital worker, hey, look, I want you to classify things as fraud or not fraud. But when you're not sure, I want you to go get a human to help out. So then what you're doing is you're getting a digital worker that's you know, looking at card transactions. It finds one that's not sure about, and it sends a text to a human worker and says, hey, what do you think about this case, fraud or not fraud? Human says fraud and sends a message back to the digital worker. So not only is the digital worker using machine learning to be able to, to understand you know, what's fraud and not fraud, it's also using machine learning to communicate to a human being, get their opinion and learn from their opinion as well. So very, very simple way of, of, of doing it. Otherwise, so this, just for a moment, not to interrupt you, but um, there's a program, uh, not sure what episode number it is, with Paul Nerger, uh, Generation Digital Workforce, where he talks about how the human becomes the artificial intelligence to the digital worker. And that's just what you've just uh, kind of re-described. Yeah. It's a very interesting paradigm to think about when the artificial intelligence is actually the human. I would flip it the other way around, is that it, it works both ways. So the human is the digital worker, you know, there's the mechanical Turk to the digital worker, and the digital worker is the mechanical Turk to the human, because the human could do the same thing. What do you think about this case? Or go have a look at this. I don't care if it's a human or, or, or a digital worker out there. I just want the work done, and it's going to come back to me with, with, with some sort of answer. So it's, it works both ways. And I think, you know, that's the real power of a digital workforce, is that if it's run correctly and managed correctly, you don't need to know who's human and who's not. What you're really looking at is how do I allocate work across different workers in the workforce who have different skills and different capabilities, and they should be able to communicate to each other. So, um, you know, a digital workforce should pass. If it's really done well, we'll pass the Turing test, which is the Turing test is that you can interact with an AI and not know if it's human or not. 
and a really good digital workforce, you, know, you should see that all the time. And, you, and actually, as a manager, at least when it comes to task allocation, you shouldn't really care. You should just see, I've got a set of, pe of, of, of entities, people and, and digital workers, human workers and digital workers who can get jobs done and they can talk to each other. So this is interesting, and it's a it's probably a little off of uh, the original script we uh, said we'd stick to, but I always like to throw a curveball here and there. I'm interested in how you redefine roles in that setting. You know, when you look at a when you're a manager looking at a team and looking at how yeah. you grow a team, and you've sure. always thought of humans on the team. You know, you yeah. have a way of packaging up, if you will, the tasks and the roles. Sure. But I think you almost have to switch the way you're thinking about that now when you have digital workers on the team. What are your thoughts around that? How do you approach uh, no, no, it a little you know differently? I know exactly what you mean. And both human, you know, it's because you now need to have you think about it is you're going to need a human cyborg uh, relations officer. And they, they've got two jobs. You know, one job is to act like HR. So if I'm managing a human workforce, I'm, I'm worried about a few things. You know, one is who can do what work and who can I allocate certain work to. I'm thinking about their personal development in the, in the sense that, you know, Steve over there needs to acquire anti-fraud skills because I need someone who can do that and Steve's ready for it and needs promotion. So I'm going to give him some training and get him up and do it. I've got the same thing with digital workers. I need something that can read screens. And so I might go out and say, look, is somebody out there manufacture a digital worker that could not only automate processes, but can look at screens and visually understand what's on it. They've got a skill that enables them to have some software in them and enables them to read off screens. And it's the same kind of thing. Like I'm constantly thinking, look, I've got human workers and sometimes I can improve their skills, upgrade them, so to speak, or I can go hire new ones, bring new ones in who've got the skills already. I do the same thing with digital workers. I can go and upgrade them. I can get them with better skills, better technologies. I might go to a different vendor because they've got a feature in one of their digital, in their digital workers that another vendor doesn't have. And that gives me the, the, the ability to get work done I didn't have before. But you know, you think about that. Is it once that so so one I'm managing a, a, a digital workforce that needs to be you know upgraded and, and, and accorded processes and tasks just like a human workforce, but also need to think about okay, how do my human workers and digital workers work together? So you know, if you hit critical mass and you've got very large numbers of digital workers mixing with human workers, I've got to train human workers how to work in this environment, and I also need to think about how I design my digital workforce. So that's operating with the human work workforce with maximum efficiency. So in other words, you know, a digital worker can't get up from his desk and walk across the room and, and chat with me, but it can send me a text. You know, it can pop up my screen with a message. You know, it, it can interact with me. So you think about, you know, I'm not really kind of half joking when I say that you need the, the human cyborg uh, relations officer because their job is to really think about this. How do I maximize the efficiency in the workforce by looking at how digital and human workers collaborate on tasks and processes across the organization. What skills do I need in human workers to be able to get the best out of that? What skills do I need in the digital workers to get the best out of that? And what's the state of the art in being able to do that? What's the latest thinking? So, you know, I think the really exciting thing about this is, yeah, you do need to think about, you know, digital worker development in, in an analogous way to humans. And you need to think about how humans and, and, and digital workers uh, work together. And how does that affect humans? I think there's, there's an HR thing here as well, is that they're going to be working asynchronously, you know, quite often. And it changes the dynamic of the workplace. And I think as, you know, digital workers become more and more prevalent, you know, the knowledge workers could be much more knowledge-based. 
And that changes things. And I'll give you an example. I was a, uh, when I was doing the automated trading, we were doing research and we automated 95% of it. And, um, and what we would do is we would take a human worker and look at what they were doing, bring them in a room and have them whiteboard the process they were following. And then we would cut it up. This is before RPA even existed. This is 10 years ago. And over time, we managed to automate about 95% of the work. At one point I asked you know, the, the, the researchers, the human researchers and said, how, do you, how are you getting on? How's this feel and how are you working and all this stuff? And the complaint was, you've automated so much that all we do is think intensely now because we only do the things humans can do. And we needed the dumb, busy work to kind of rest a little bit and kind of relax. And we had to change the way they work. So the first thing we did is we said, okay, we want you working 45 minutes at a time. You have a mandatory 15 minute break. And the idea is just to get you that downtime. So do 45 minutes, go do something else, I don't care. You know, go out, go outside, get a break, have a cup of coffee, chat. And um, then it worked. And but what we found is that when we did, we hit critical mass automation that the humans found it difficult, not because, you know, that they felt their work was being taken away from them. What they felt was that the work they were left with was much more interesting and much more satisfying. But very, you know, it was exhausting because they didn't get these breaks they got before. And so we had to change it. So very long way of answering your question, but it's a real issue, and it, and, and you really do have to think about it. But I'll, I'll flip you the, the the good side of this is one we had great retention, and two, you know, we reduced our cost for doing research ninety five percent, which had a massive impact on what we were, we were able to achieve. So it was a very interesting journey because it was my first lesson in in really how do automations and humans work together, and it created some things like that that were very very um, counterintuitive and you had to grapple with them. So there is an issue there. There definitely is and something uh, for us to explore more on a future program. So I'll definitely have you back. But what, I, what I'd like to do uh, now is turn and look at the commercial side of the house a bit. And how does having a digital workforce really help me as a business from a commercial perspective? Sure, sure, okay. So there's there's two levels of this. So the base level is I bring in digital workers to automate processes, and that gives me a degree of savings. And so let's say for the sake of argument, each digital worker um, gives me a 30% savings. I mean, the reality is is, is, is about six times, uh, six to seven FTEs for each digital worker, but let's call it 30%. And I automate half the work in the business. So I've now, in effect, reduced the amount of work the company has to do for a given amount of business by 15%, right? Because each digital worker is doing 30%, half the work of the company is now done by them, so it gives me a 15% uh, reduction, which is huge. I mean, anyone would, would give their right leg to get a 15% reduction in, in work in the organization. But what gets really interesting is that the, the, the value that generates goes over and above the 15% um, that you said. And I'll give you I'll give you two or three. One is around uh, workforce agility. And if I'm a CFO or I'm a chief operating officer, and I want to respond to current market conditions that fluctuate by the week or by the month, I'm lucky if I pull the lever to change the way the company works. If actually a company changes course within six months or nine months, in other words, the the steering in a large organization is really spongy. I turn the wheel. You know what today, and it's it's August. Maybe in February, the the tanker starts to turn. 
But if you've hit critical mass with digital workers and they're infused throughout the organization, your ability to steer that ship is going to increase dramatically because it's very, very easy to, to, to get digital workers to change in terms of the processes that they're automating. So not only are you getting this overall 15% savings by having all these digital workers, but your ability to respond to market conditions now has increased dramatically. So there's a benefit in terms of your ability to generate return, to, to be able to respond to situations that's you know, over and above, it's incremental, it's emergent over what that digital worker has already saved you. Another really good example of this is, is let's say you are automating a process that's very low return to the organization. Compliance, for example, you don't make any money in a bank by being compliant. It just, it just keeps you out of jail and stops you getting fined. And so you have to do it, okay? But wouldn't you rather that the people doing compliance were servicing your customers, maybe making you a bit more money? So if you're able to, say, take out the 20% of your cost that's compliance and apply that 20% to revenue generating activities, not only do you save 20% of your, or if you, if you eliminate 20% of your cost, but if we reinvest that savings into the organization, you now get a compounding effect. Because you think about it, I've spent $100 putting some digital workers in that automate a compliance process. I can either fire the people doing the compliance work and keep my $100, or I could take those compliance people and put them into revenue generating uh, work, which generates more revenue. I'll then take the revenue that I've just generated and buy more digital workers. I invest the digital workers into automating more low revenue stuff that frees up FT FTEs to more higher revenue stuff. So you get a compounding effect where not only are you saving you know, 30% on the work by putting in the digital workers, but that 30% compounds because it's creating new revenue that you can then invest in more digital workers and keep the whole thing going. So when you look at automation from a digital workforce perspective, not just a, you know, not a process automation perspective, but from a digital workforce, you can get these emergent values out of it that are way beyond what you're getting just from process automation and the savings and efficiencies you're getting from that. And I think that's really, really important because it goes back to this earlier comment about, you know, what do you do? How do you manage a digital workforce? And the other trick with this is that you're also managing, still managing your human workforce. And when you start thinking strategically, where do I automate? It's not just about where's the low-lying fruit, what's the easiest thing to automate. What you really want to do is automate the stuff that makes you no money, but you have to do it and reallocate your valuable human resource to things that do make you money. There's a meta strategy that sits over a digital workforce. It's not just about cost savings and efficiencies. It's about the more a more efficient allocation of capital, both human and uh, monetary capital across the organization. And that compounds. I mean, you get you know the compounding effect of interest on the organization uh, working for you if you do that. That sounds like something every executive should be interested in doing. I'm wondering, I'm curious if you have done any research around those businesses that had digital workforces and their ability to survive this strange time we're living through with this global pandemic where, you know, not only were our onshore, but our offshore resources were impacted as well. Any thoughts on, you know, you, you mentioned agility, being able to turn faster, being able to, you know, I'll say survive, you know, a, a rough storm that maybe you didn't foresee. Any yeah. any thoughts on how businesses are doing that that had a digital workforce yeah. before I, this? I, I, and talking to somebody about one. It's it's the uh, UC San Francisco have a um, amongst other thing other things a lab that specializes in vaccines. 
So when COVID hit, they were contacting us and saying, hey, can you work on COVID? And they said, well, we could, but it means we have to reconfigure how we operate. And what's more, they kind of realized, look, there's lots of people working on vaccines out there. You know, is there an angle that we could come at it that would deal with an under-resourced area around vaccines? And they realized it was testing and creating new proteins for testing and a more rapid test that you know, might be a better use of their resources. But the challenge is that they have a whole set of processes that they have to totally rearrange every time they change direction. And that's very, very time consuming. And, you know, it's a bit of the turn the taker kind of thing. So what they use with digital workers for is they use the digital worker to execute those changes in processes. So in a way, what they've done is that the digital worker is handling those changes almost entirely. So they don't, you know, they're able to, to, to pivot the processes that the, the laboratory follows much more quickly. And it's a great example of how um, having a digital worker on staff, so to speak, enabled them to do that because they wouldn't have been able to do it before. And when you look at how this works in, a, in, a, in say, a modern corporation, is if you want that kind of agility, you're probably talking to the IT department. And the IT department's saying, yeah, you're going to have to integrate this system and that system. And you're going to, and, and you know, you're looking at millions of dollars and years of work. And you know, whereas with digital workers, you don't you can integrate those systems without having to do it physically, without spending millions, without spending three years. So the examples we're seeing is where people said, yeah, we need to change our processes and we need to change the systems that people work on. And digital workers have given them the agility they need to do that very quickly and very efficiently. And that's again, it goes back to what's the value you get from a digital workforce that's greater than just the efficiency savings. And that agility, that ability to be able to change your operations without changing your underlying systems is a big part of that. And that also compounds out because um, the better you get at that, the faster you can change your processes in the future and the more agility you get. So it's almost like uh, like creating a muscle memory within the organization. Once it learns how what, what digital workforces can really do at an organizational level and at an operational level, you get better at it. And, um, and every time you get better, you can shrink the amount of time it takes to be able to do these kinds of changes. So, um, so yeah, the answer is yes. And it's, it's really around that agility. But also what people are finding is the more they do it, the better they're getting at it. And, um, and that's also compounding the value they're getting out of the digital workforces. Do you see a, um, a day in the future when all businesses have a digital workforce? And and if so, what would you predict would be the right balance? Is it one digital worker for every 10 humans or, you know, it, yeah. let, let's, okay. let's go 20, let's go 20 years into the future and end our program with some big thinking about what the, what that might look like. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'll start with, where do I see this going within five years? I mean, I think, I don't think we're too far off from where when you join a company, you get given three things. You're handed, you know, a, an ID, some sort of computing device and a license for a digital worker. And you use that digital worker to help you with your own stuff. And it's not just, so for example, if I'm a travel agent, there's value in me spending more time talking to people on the phone, arranging the travel, than searching for travel. So the job of my digital worker I'm assigned to is, is while I'm talking to somebody, the digital worker's off doing all the Google searches. It's all fine. You know, it's, it's actually inputting everything into the, you know, the, the airline systems, getting information back for me. So I'm spending my time talking to people. I'm not spending my time tapping away on a, on a, on a keyboard. And you're already getting a kind of atomic level uh, benefit from that. 
In terms of what's the right ratio, it depends entirely on the organization, entirely on the industry. And I don't think there's a there's a right answer there. But I do think that that what you should be targeting is that, and this is what I went through when I when I did this this automation in the past, is we looked at, well, what requires thinking? And what is just kind of rote mechanical going from one system into another and just pulling out information? And that's the first level of analysis you need to be doing is, is working at, well, how much of my work is that? The other thing you want to look at is, is it's called work prevention. There's a lot of work that companies do they shouldn't be doing. They're fixing errors. They're fixing problems that should never have happened before. And it can be 10, 20, 30% of the work a company does. So part of what you should be doing when you're thinking about how many digital workers I have is, well, where does this work occur that I shouldn't be doing? How do I prevent work? It's an odd thing to say to somebody, an operations person, is that your job is to prevent people doing work. And what we're really trying to say with this is that there's a lot of work that's just unnecessary. So where are the processes out there that generate the errors? And how can you use digital workers to reduce those errors? You know, could they be checking you know, in real time or can you replace the human piece in there completely and totally automate it? So there's a, there's a piece here, which is look, use your human workforce for what it's best at, which is the human brain, right? It's in our ability to judge, to think, to deal with exceptions, um, you know, to, to talk to the fellow human being, you know, give them a higher level of customer service and stop doing stuff where I'm creating work for other people because I'm screwing up. And I'm screwing up because I'm doing a very boring mechanical process and I slip up, you know, because every once an hour, you know, I forget to enter the field. And so there's that piece of it. But what that right ratio is depends on operationally what you do as an organization and, and you know, where, you know, where you're going to get both maximum efficiency in terms of, you know, the cost of process, the cost of doing work, but also where do you get the maximum efficiency and stopping unnecessary work from happening in the, in, the, in the first place? But I think this is happening quick. I mean, there's some stat out recently that's saying that, um, you know, uh, process automation is the fastest growing area of technology in, in a long, long time. I mean, it's really exploding. So um, I don't think this is five it to 20 years away. That way. probably two to five years away. It feels that way being in it, honestly, for the last uh, I've 32 months now, I guess I've been part of this crazy ride. And uh, the last time I remember an industry doing what this industry is doing, it was, you know, when the internet made its way to corporate yeah. America back in the late 90s. So, uh, and I'll, I'll date myself there a bit, but um, super exciting stuff. And Look forward to having you on the, the program so that we can dig in a little bit more to the cyborg officer <laughs> role in a company <laughs> and uh, what kind of things uh, our, our HR fellows uh, need to be thinking about as uh, they uh, think about how to really bring on a digital workforce really to the business, right? It's, it's different than just doing pockets of automation here and there. Yeah. It's a transformational to cultural shift in uh -huh. the business. Absolutely, it's a paradigm shift in how you how you run organizations, but also in in how your workers work within that organization as well. So it's yeah, it's it's big. It is. It's big. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation and having you on the program, Eric. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week for Generation Digital Workforce. Be sure to check out how to connect with Eric in our show notes, and join us next week for another exciting episode. 
You've been listening to Generation Digital Workforce. If you want to hear more about RPA, AI, and other cognitive technologies that are shaping the future of work, join us next time as we continue to go deeper on these topics with industry innovators and experts. To make sure you never miss a future episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you've liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways to help more people find valuable content. For show notes and more info, visit us at blueprism.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.